KMTT Kimitzion Tetzay Torah. And today's Friday, Erev Shabbat Kodesh Pashat Kitetzay Yud Yud Elul. Today we're going to have as part of our getting ready for Yom Rosh Hashanah Chodesh Elul. We have a sicha on Tshuva from Harav Moshe Taragin, and followed by the regular uh, appearance of Avtavori uh, with the figure character of the week. So first, Harav Moshe Taragin on Tshuva. Each Yamtif is rooted in very deep and existential symbolism. Each Yamtif and each Chag is meant to generate an expanded religious consciousness or awareness, geared, oriented towards particular themes, nascent within that Yamtif. Those themes are evoked typically by a rich system of mitzvos, minhagim, halachos, but that symbolism is also contained in the languages, particularly the Yom Tovim that have roots in the Torah, the experiences that have biblical roots, and the language which the Torah employs to describe the events, the historical events, and of course the consequent symbolism for our own inner religious experience. So for example, the Chag of Pesach is an experience or holiday riveted upon the notion of freedom, but freedom is often misunderstood, oftentimes distorted, oftentimes distorted so that it transforms into tyranny. So Chazal, but not just Chazal Psukim, begin to elaborate the various modalities and attitudes of freedom. Arba Lishonos, Shalcherus, Shalgaula, Vatsesi, Vitsalti, Vigalti, Vilakhti, at least freedom in its historical context. The month of Elo, culminating in the Yamtif of Rosh Hashanah and in the opportunity of Yom Kippur, is a 40-day period dedicated to the courageous prospect of tshuva. The boldest implementation of man's freedom of choice, only one creature in this universe was invested with freedom of choice, and we employ that freedom no more courageously than when we affect not the world around us or the behavior, but the identity of ourselves. We self-sculpt a new person. It's a bold, provocative, but very challenging and ambitious opportunity. And to capture the magnitude of this opportunity, the sweep, the, pre- the dimension of tshuva, Chazal articulate the tshuva process, the recovery from chait, and the opportunity for self-resurrection. Chazal incorporate tshuva in many different languages. If there are four languages of geula, of cheros, on Pesach, there are many more manifold languages of tshuva. In the various psukim, which describe tshuva, the verbs which the Torah employs, the associations Chazal draw from various drashas. I would like to discuss three languages of tshuva, three different perspectives upon tshuva, each evinced or evoked by different languages. The first theme of tshuva to be articulated through psukim and elaborated by Chazal is tshuva as a recovery process. Tshuva is described in medical terms. The first instance is a Pasuk in Yeshaya, Perak Nunzayim, Barei, Niv Tzfasayim, Shalom, Shalom, L'Rachok, V'Lakarov, Amar Hashem, Urafasiv, a Pasuk which is incorporated in Mashavar Davening, or Hashanah Kippur, Barei, Niv Tzfasayim, Amar Hashem, Urafasiv, Hashem embraces the Rachok and the Karov, the Rachok and the Karov, the man who's distant and the man who's close. An oblique reference to the process of Tshuva, which is a experience of vicinity, of trying to re-achieve a closest to our Kodesh Baruch Hu. Shalom, shalom, l'rachok v'la'karov, amar Hashem I will heal you. 
tshuva is therapeutic. Similar sentiments can be, can be detected in a pasuk in Hosea. Perak Yudalit, pasuk Yudalit, Erpa meshuvasam ohavein nedava, hishav apimimenu. Erpa meshuvasam, I will heal their illness, I will heal their pathology. Hishav apimimenu, when I quiet my anger from them. The Gemara Yoma notices in particular the pasuk in Hosea, but the same could have been said about the pasuk in Yeshaya Nunzayin. The Gemara Yoma undaf pevav amar ebchama barchanina. Gedola tshuva, shemivia rifus leolam, shenemar erpa meshuvasam ohavem nedava. Tshuva is majestic. Tshuva is spectacular because it heals, because it's therapeutic. What aspects of tshuva are best captured by its association with a medical recovery? I think that, on the one hand, probably the most dominant theme which this association, which this juxtaposition creates is to view tshuva not as transformative, but as restorative. Obviously, there's a metamorphosis in tshuva, becoming a new person. The Rebbe Zetzel spoke about this, noted that the Rambam mentions even a name change as a um, choice, as an option for a Baal tshuva, to become a different person and thereby to exonerate or acquit yourself from your past. But as much as tshuva is transformative, it also has to be seen as restorative, as a rehabilitation of self to achieve a lost self, not just a new self person recovers from an illness, it's a very powerful sense that there's a foreign body which is invading his space, which is upsetting his homeostatic equilibrium. And the goal of medicine is not to become something else, but to remove that foreign body or to still its impact, to suppress its damage, and to return to a prior, previous state of health and of inner symmetry. In fact, this attitude underlies much of homeopathic more organic medical solutions and strategies, where attempts are made not only or not primarily to address the foreign body invading, but to reestablish whatever lost equilibrium this illness or this invasion has induced. Many ways reminds us that our goal and our hope in Shuva is to recover a lost self. That there was a primal a most native reality that was purer, that was more religious and more saintly, and that that innocence has become corrupted by a world of experience, by a world of failure, by a fragile self and psyche. And the purpose of tshuva is to re-achieve. Rather than becoming something else, it is removing a foreign impediment and re-establishing that primal purity. There's another Gemara which probably captures this, a Gemara in Brachos, Daf Yudzayim, maybe from a different angle, but by expressing similar sentiments. Amar, Rebbe Alexandri, Rebbe Alexandri, Basar de in Brachos Yudzayim, after he would daven, Amar, he would conclude his davening, Rebbon HaOlamim, Rebbon HaShalom, Galoi V'yadur Lefanecha, Asher Etzoneinu L'Asos Etzonecha, our inner self, our inner desire is to adhere to religion, is to pursue and to obey. Umim HaAkev, and what impedes us, Saor Shebeisa, the yeast within the dough, v'shiv and malchios, and geopolitical strain. So obviously a person lives in a world of reality, in that world of external reality, whether it's politics, economics, um, the plight of Jewish history, very often deters or complicates Avodah Hashem. But the first part of Rev. Alexandri's statement was that Avodah Hashem is obstructed, not solely because of external forces, but because of an internal invasion by a foreign body, 
how far in that body is to be seen. Is the Yitzhahar an external agent, or is the Yitzhahar some internal tilt or predilection towards disobedience? That's an important question on to its own right, but either way, Rabbi Alexander did not see it as representative of the inherent dough, the inherent flour, but rather some yeast. And it's fascinating that the yeast is also necessary to allow the bread to rise at, at some level. The factors within ourself and our psyche necessary to enrich human experience, they themselves very often derail human experience or impede Avodah Hashem. But this sentiment of Rebbe Alexandria is very similar to that first consequence of viewing tshuva as therapeutic, as almost medical. Um, I think a second notion that the Sokim and Hoshea and Yeshaya imply, and this is already a metaphor which is um, sensed very often in Sifre Musa, in other Sifre Machshava, it's clear in the medical field that most people are not in complete possession of the tools and knowledge and skills to heal themselves. Already the Torah recognizes that even in a religious setting in which the recognition of medical recovery is stemming solely from a Kaddish Baruch Hu is very clear, is very dominant, even within that framework, there will be individuals who will excel in honing and fine-tuning the skills of medicine and in providing medical service to others. And in fact, one of the developments that has shifted humanity to high gear to the modern world is dramatic advances over the last two, three hundred years in the field of medicine. Who wouldn't attend? Who wouldn't visit a doctor? Who would have the arrogance and the self-defeating hubris to attempt their own recovery from a serious illness? If chuba is likened to recovery from an illness, then that same attitude has to inform the process of chuba. The Rambam describing the willingness to listen to advice, to input, to positive, constructive criticism from others as a vital ingredient to tshuva. The Rambam and Hilchas Tshuva, Perak Dalit, lists the refusal, the defiance, the dislike of critique as one of the character traits which will almost, almost obviate, lock a person out of tshuva. It's impossible to completely eliminate the potential for tshuva. That would be almost heretical in the grand scheme of our unlimited Bechirachavshis, couldn't be calculated into the equation, but certainly people can establish realities and conditions of self which make it very, very difficult to recover. And the Rambam lists the fifth element of human behavior which impedes Shuva, the Hasonei, Parakdal HaLachabeis, Hasonei Estatochachos, a person who dislikes rebuke. He hasn't allowed himself a road, a pathway, an opportunity for Shuva. Shehatochacha, when a person is informed of his failures and his miscues, the Rambam concludes, one could claim that the central occupation of the Vim were not merely to prophesize about the future, but to rebuke Am Yisrael and charge them, inspire them to higher moral ground. So if Tshuva is being likened to medicinal experience and medicinal recovery, it's obvious an expert opinion, an expert skill has to be sought out. The Rambam and Hichos Tainis describes the scene of a Tainis Tzibor, which was a different opportunity for Tshuva. The Rambam suggests in the end of Parak Aleph that in each town, people were invited for private interviews with the local Zikanim, with the local Rabbanim, with the local town leadership. And during this interview, they were asked to introspect, but also to scrutinize their behavior, locating areas for improvement. Many yeshivos, older-style yeshivos, every bacher was interviewed by the Rebbe, by the Mashkiach, by the Rosh Hashiva, prior to Hashanah Yom Kippur as a guide 
in many uh, newer yeshivas, hopefully this experience is jump-started by general environment of Chodesh Elul, by uh, general collective calls to Cheshman HaNefesh. But the sense that tshuva cannot be a solitary process authored solely by the wisdom and foresight of the individual is certainly an element which the analogy to medicine confirms or corroborates. Um, perhaps there's a third component to tshuva. Certainly the Rambam as a medical doctor, as a, one of the greatest medical practitioners of his day, certainly the Rambam sensed this and wrote about this. The Rambam in Hochesdeos in the first parak writes of the famous golden mean that when honing or calibrating character traits, everything is dangerous in excess. Sometimes this is misunderstood. In religion, in the world of Minadam Lamakom, your relationship with Ravon Shalom excess is wonderful. You're chasing the unattainable. You're chasing the elusive infinite of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and the closest we could come to even capturing a, a small approximation of that infinity clearly requires titanic, overarching human effort. So the Rambam would never suggest that when it comes to Torah and to mitzvot, the intensity and passion that we bring to our performance of mitzvot, to our study of Torah, that we should pr- proceed along uh, with lukewarm and uh, lethargic interest. But when it comes to personal character traits, should a person be generous? Should a person preserve his funds? Should a person be happy all the time? Should he be a little bit more somber? Should he... So the Rambam believes, the Rambam believed that the golden mean, the Mida Benonis, was ideal. But the Rambam did recognize, as many others, that if a person notices a tilt towards an excess, a person wants to achieve balance, balance cannot be achieved by the introduction of moderate behavioral patterns. Sometimes to achieve balance, extreme counteractive agents have to be introduced. If cancer has to be treated, so a very aggressive cell killer must be introduced into the human body, into the human system. The hope is that it will target the cancerous cells, but ultimately there's a great danger that it also targets um, organic cells. Either way, the Rambam does speak, even in Hilchus Deus, more so in Perak Beis, as many other Balei Musar spoke, that to counteract certain excessive traits, just like that counteracting process in the medical field has to be achieved by creating a balance, by introducing extreme counteractive agents, similarly when it comes to tshuva. So if a person, for example, senses an excessive level of arrogance, he may have to create opportunities for excessive levels of humility so that he will achieve a healthy mean. For instance, senses uh, a lack of energy in certain areas of Avodah Hashem, he may have to pour excess energy into those areas, not just Avodah Hashem, but character traits, in order to achieve an ultimate equilibrium. So these two psukim, Hoshea and Yeshaya, which liken Shuva to a medical process, the Gemara Yoma senses that analogy, they certainly allow for some of the notions of Shuva which are born out of this association. A second language of Geula which Chazal employ is a language of redemption of Geula. Perhaps the Pasuk most familiar, Pasuk which we recite often in our Slichos, on Yom Kippur, Yishaya Mendalit, Perchav Beis, Machisi Ka'av Pishoecha, V'cheanan Chatosecha, Shuvai Lai, Kigealticha. Return to me, for I will redeem you. Now, in many ways, the association between Shuvah and Geula has historic and national connotations. The Rambam, based on the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Sadikhas, Ein Yisrael, Nigalim, Ela Betshuva. Rambam Paskins that our ultimate Geula will not happen automatically or unconditionally, but will be a product of mass Tshuva, of some epiphanious event turning the hearts of an entire nation back towards religion, back towards Avodah Hashem. The Rambam demands that we believe against the empirical reality, that we don't sense this as imminent, but the Rambam believes, demands that we believe 
already promised us that this tshuva will occur in, in the wake of that tshuva, a national and historical redemption. So this pasuk in Yeshaya, Shuva Altiha, certainly evokes or implies a broader effect or a broader uh, benefit of tshuva in ex- accelerating and enabling Gulas Yisrael. But beyond the national and historical implications of this association between tshuva and gula, there certainly are personal messages which the term gula, as it pertains to tshuva, possesses. Another pasuk which articulates the tshuva process in redemptive terms is another famous pasuk in Tehillim Parak Koflamid, a pasuk we recite in one of the well-recited and well-familiar Shur HaMalos is Yachel Yisrael al Hashem. Kiyem Hashem HaChesed v'harbei mo fidus. Fidus is Redemption, in this case, the redemption from captivity, liberation of hostages. So certainly the language of David in Parakuf Lamed is very parallel to the language of Yeshayim and David, a very similar experiences, slight differences, nuanced differences, but there's more similarities than there are differences. What motif of tshuva does this language evoke, does this language showcase? Well, at a literal level, pidyon and geula removes a person, or eliminates, spares a person from suffering. In the case of a hostage, the suffering of captivity. Geula actually, despite all of it, it's a very charged word, especially as we're living through the period of geula. But geula in the Torah is solely employed to um, re- reconstitute land in the hands of an original owner who was penurious, who was impoverished, and sold it, and a, a uh, relative, or perhaps the person himself, is Goel, redeems the land, liberates the land, and repositions the land in the hands of the original owner, relieving the land from the weight, the, from the control of a foreign body or a foreign personality. He's Goelit. Same as much as Tshuva relieves the potential for punishment, eliminates punishment, bars or protects a person from punishment, so it certainly carries that sense of tshuva in helping a person avoid onesh. Parshish Mishpatim, the Torah speaks about kofar. The person is so negligent that his dangerous, known to be dangerous animal murders, in many ways, he, was, he deserves to be killed because his gross negligence ended in manslaughter. So in this case, being that his hands weren't directly involved in the shedding of blood, so the Torah allows him to pay kofar, but that kofar is called kofar, it's a form of kapara, and the Torah describes it as pijonavsho. Pijonavsho is literally blood money to be delivered to the victims, the family of the victim, in place of capital punishment. But there's a uh, second connotation to tshuva being referred to as geula. Tshuva is depicted, or tshuva is in its essence, not just the process of recovery, of improvement, transformation, return to Hashem, it's a process of liberation. And perhaps the mitzvah, or the symbol that best captures the liberating or emancipating effect of tshuva, is the mitzvah of shofar. Shofar in all cultures is a sound of liberation, a sound of freedom. It's not incidental, or it's not insignificant, that the shofar was not only blown in Rosh Hashanah, but was blown on Yom Kippur of Yovel. And on the Yom Kippur of Yovel, on the one hand, it launched the Yovel year experience of liberation in a socioeconomic context where slaves were emancipated and returned to their former freedom. 
But also according to Yom Kippur, it had that sort of double entendre, it had that echo. On the one hand, it announced socioeconomic liberation, but also on Yom Kippur, the day in which we're freest, we're freed from food, we're freed from sleep, we're freed from human comfort, which may seem like a form of tyranny, but ultimately to the religious soul, is a liberating moment, to be freed from the shackles of our own mortality. It was not incidental that it occurred on Yom Kippur, and it served to announce freedom, not just to slaves, but to every man, and the literal, concrete freedom of the slaves, perhaps just uh, highlighted or accentuated the more subtle existential freedom that every man was called to. Was a moment of freedom, not just for slaves or for people whose land was returned, but for every inhabitant, spiritual freedom, existential freedom, freedom from work, to dedicate interests to more important pursuits. The Psikvid Rav Kahana takes this theme of a shofar as a liberator and applies it to Rosh Hashanah as well, not just the Yom Kippur of Yovel, which person lived through maybe once, maybe twice in his lifetime, so as powerful and as piercing the images it was an experience, it was very much peripheral to the human experience. It's symbolic, but you didn't actually live through it too often. The Sikhatur of Kahana envisions the same liberating capacity on Rosh Hashanah as well. The Sikhatur reads, Kol Yemos Hashanah the entire year, Yisrael Asukin Bimlachtan. Everyone's working as is normal as is expected. Over Rosh Hashanah, in this case, it's important to know that Rosh Hashanah is scheduled at the end of the agricultural cycle, at the end of the work cycle, the end of the work season. No clean shofaros v'tokin. Each person takes the shofar and the work ceases. In the absence of work, that period between the harvest of the previous and the planting season of the next agricultural cycle, there's a freedom from certain necessary obstructive responsibilities to dedicate religious and personal resources to more eternal callings. So the concept of Geula casts tshuva, and not just tshuva of Yom Kippur Rosh Hashanah through the shofar, but tshuva is the relieving of a tyranny. Every chait takes a person as a hostage, so to speak. If we return to the Lashon of David HaMelech, V'hu Yivdes Yisrael Mekalavon God redeems us from our sins. It's almost as if our sins hijack us. They capture the human soul, the human personality. Chait is an addictive experience. The Gemara in the end of the first parak of Kiddushin, talks about Kivan After a person sins once or twice, the behavioral cycles associated with sin run so deep through his psyche that it always becomes addictive, and that addiction leads him, not that he deludes himself into assuming it's mutter, but the cycles become so repetitive that it's almost as if he's performing an act of permissibility rather than a prohibited crime, which causes shame and, and shock. It loses its shock value, or as Chazal say in another location, Avera, Goreras, Avera. So there's an addiction to substances, but there's also addictions that are more subtle, but more, far more preponderant, and in many ways more dangerous, addiction to behavioral cycles. And Avera carries that addiction. So at a certain level, each and every one of us is hostage to the influence and to the con- continuity, the regiment and routine of Chait. And recovering from that process is an exertion of freedom of choice. It's simply deciding not to be drawn um, ineluctably or inexorably after um, just basic patterns that have carved themselves onto our identity, onto our personality, and just refashioning that personality in a free and uninhibited or unfettered fashion. That's a redemptive experience. That's a freedom. That's a release. That's a, a ransoming of self. So the shofar as a mitzvah, but the language in both Yeshayim and Dawid and Tehillim Parakuflamid each create this attitude to tshuva associated with redemption, with liberation, 
It's meant to help us acquire a certain voice of tshuva. Third language, and as I mentioned earlier, plenty more than three, but I just have enough time to discuss three. It's in many ways related to the second language, but highlights a slightly different shade of freedom. Very often, chait, and by extension, tshuva is an inverse, but chait is described as someone falling, as someone tripping. Perhaps the most familiar and renowned pasuk is the pasuk in the beginning of, uh, or in the pasuk in the Haftar of Shabbos tshuva, Hashem Perak Yudalat Tshuva Yisrael Ad Hashem Elokecha. We have tripped, we have fallen into sin. Tshuva has a weight that causes someone to fall. The notion that Tshuva is a heavy weight and a heavy burden is first evoked by Cain. When Cain questions Hashem, and it's unclear at which stage this discussion takes place, but in Barashas Parakdalid, Cain asks, Is he asking? Is he declaring? That already is a debate amongst Rafarshim, but he clearly feels the weight of sin. He wants to know if it's too heavy for human beings to carry. In a very um, poignant parak in Tehillim, Parak Lamed Ches, when David HaMelech, so to speak, looks in the mirror and, and senses the shame of his misdeeds. So in Parak Lamed Ches, David HaMelech describes the pain that he feels. And again, he describes in medical terms festering infections, uh, pus-filled uh, cancers, which hark back to the original image of tshuva as a medical process. But David HaMelech, in that same parak, Lam Ches, David HaMelech writes, in Pasuk he writes, Ki avrushi, ki kaveh, My sins have passed, or hovering above my head, as a heavy weight, kaveh, They're too heavy for me to carry. Somehow there's a weight of tshuva, but not just a weight, but a weight that causes people to fall. Ki the Rav Zatzal, in one of his essays on Tshuva and Yom Kippur, noted that the Sari Lazazel, perhaps is no symbolism, more closely affiliated with Chait than the Sari Lazazel, which was sent out to the desert carrying this goat, carrying the sins of an entire nation on its back, and when it was killed, the sins were eliminated. Obviously, not magically, but through a collective, collective uh, contrition, a collective atonement, officered by the Kohen Gadol. So the Rambam writes, based on the Gemara, you pushed it backwards, and it fell down the hill. According to the Rav, this image declares that in every chait, there is an element not just of submission or succumbing to some foreign invasion, but every chait contains an aspect of a human being allowing himself to follow the path of least resistance, to be a victim of gravity rather than an author of his future, there's a lethargy, there's a laziness, there's a fall. A person falls, he doesn't take an action, he's not exerting energy. A fall is entropic, he just allows himself to be exposed to gravity. Chet is entropic, entropy is when items move from the path of greater resistance to the path of least resistance. And in many cases, tshuva, when we succumb to cowardliness, insecurity, exigencies, particular needs, particular desires, there's a lack of defiance and a lack of strength, and we don't exert that initiative or energy or conviction or discipline, and we just have a laissez-faire type of attitude and allow, allow a certain cycle to evolve when it's on. We get caught up. People say we get caught up in certain things. We're caught up. We don't want to be caught. We don't want to be seen in a certain way. We want to be popular. Whatever the things we're caught up in, there are broader cycles or broader dynamics, and they gather momentum, and we allow ourselves to be swept up in the energy and the momentum of those cycles, it isn't a malicious or mendacious decision, it's rather just allowing ourselves to fall. 
And this is evidenced by the Sar Lazazel. The Sar Lazazel just falls. And if Chet is falling, not necessarily choosing and crafting a deviance or departure, rather just submitting ourselves to larger forces rather than opposing those forces, rather than marshalling the strength of character to withstand whatever natural pressures exist. And the process of recovery is an ascent, is a rise, is a generation of greater defiance, generating that greater defiance to work against natural tides. It's an ascent. So the notion that chayt is falling into something is meant to remind us that sometimes our chayt is not, ironically, is not the recovery from an illness in the sense of the invasion of something foreign, but just natural laziness, natural realities that overcome our strength of character and overcome our willpower. The same is evoked by two other references. The common denominator between these two other references is that a heart which is absent of tshuva or an experience which is absent of tshuva is compared to stones. Another very well-known pasuk, Yecheskel Paraklam Edvav, V'nasati Lechem Leiv Chadash, V'ruach Chadasha Aten Bekir Bechem, V'hasir Asiyas Leiv Ha'even Mibsarchem, V'nasati Lechem Leiv Basar, Yecheskel Paraklam Edvav, I will remove the heart of stone, and I will replace it with a heart of flesh, with a heart of sensation, a Leiv Basar. Yeshaya refers to it in Yeshaya Nun Zayin, again, a Torah we read leading up to Rosh Hashanah, Salu, Salu, Panu Derech, clear the way the king is coming, which itself carries echoes of Rosh Hashanah. Remove the stumbling block, the stumbling blocks from the path of my people. The Gemara and Sukkot and Afnun Beis juxtaposes these two prophecies. Yeshaya Karu Michshol. Yeshaya refers to Chet as a Michshol. Shinemar Salu, Salu, Panu Derech, Harimu Michshol, Miderech Ami. Yechezkel Karu Evan. Yechezkel calls it a stone. So Gemara in many ways is contrasting between a stumbling block and a stone, but the common denominator is a weight a weight which causes someone to fall, whose weight cannot be tolerated, cannot be shouldered, and it causes that person just to fall into the, the force of gravity and to lose his ability to respond or to uh, define and author his own initiative. So referring to tshuva as a fall, or referring to chen as a fall, reminds us that the process of tshuva, in some ways, is just generating the willpower not to be a victim of gravity, in this case not gravity in a literal sense, but just the path of least resistance and natural forces that may impact or dictate our behavior. So these are just three languages of tshuva, three colors or voices of tshuva. And in many ways, in some ways, they run into each other, they conflict with each other. I don't think that tshuva is a palette of different colors. It's more like a kaleidoscope of different colors where the colors sort of run into each other, but I think that's more reflective of the human heart, that it's hard to compartmentalize different emotions and different passions. They, they do tend to converge. They do tend to spill into each other. But trying to at least lend them greater definition and greater resolution perhaps gives us a more intuitive voice, makes us at least more tuned to the voices of tshuva and hopefully enriches our capacity to restore ourselves. Chadesh Yamenu Kekedem. You've been listening to Harav Moshe Tarragin on tshuva. And now Harav Benjamin Tavori the figure, the Gadol of the week, this week, the yard site of the Maharal Miprag. Harav Binyam Tavoy. This Shabbat, Chai Elul, is the yard site of Harav Yehuda Leib Ben Betzalel. That name might not sound that familiar to people. However, when I call him by his nickname, it is obviously well known to everybody. Rabbi Yehuda Leib Ben Betzalel, better known as the Maharal, was Niftar on Chai Elul, in the year 1609.
He was born approximately 1525 to a family of Tamidi Chachamim. His father was known as a major Tamid Chacham, and his brother also wrote Svarim and was known in the world of Lamdis as well. Interestingly enough, we know very little about the education of the Maharal, and assumedly his father taught him, and he probably was very autodidactic, but we have no serious record of any Rabbanim who taught him. He was well-versed in many, many areas. Obviously, in the world of Torah, which was his forte, but he also was known in the world of mathematics, apparently had relations with people who are known as great scientists in his generation as well. When he eventually became Rav of Prague, his fame had preceded him. Everyone knew and had heard of the Maharal. The reports were that he came from the Yichus of David HaMelech, his family traditions could be traced back to David HaMelech, and he had very original thoughts on many topics. One of his famous ideas was against the system of learning that was instituted at that time, which is more or less what we would call the Pilpul method, and the advice of Pirkei Avos, at what age to begin learning various studies, was endorsed by the Maharal and recommended by him against the common approach at that time, and in fact, the ca- against the approach of most generations, the Mishnah, of course, says Ben Chamesh the Mikra, at five a person should learn, begin learning Mishnayis, and later, uh, Mikra, uh, Torah, Torah Shebichsav. Only later should he learn Mishnayis, and only later should he learn Gemara. In fact, according to the Mishnah, it seems to be the age of 15 that a person should really begin learning Gemara. And the Maral felt that this old adage of Pirkei Avos should be endorsed and felt that was the proper method of education. This obviously influenced his Talmidim so much that one of his main Talmidim was known as the Tosfos Yantif, Rabbi Yotav Lipman Heller, who wrote a Pewish on Mishnayis to make the Mishnayis more accessible to the learner who learned Mishnayis without learning Gemara necessarily. The Maharal, as I said before, came from Mishpachas David HaMelech. His name was Leib, which is Lion. On his grave, the tombstone today has pictures depicting a lion, and he even used that name of Lion for one of his major svarim. The Sefer Perush on Rashi, called Gur Aryeh, was, has in it, of course, the name Aryeh, Yehuda Leib, Gur Aryeh. This, his other svarim, his main claim in, today in the world of Jewish thought is for the series of svarim, a whole series of svarim that are just generally called the Maharal, and those svarim have titles based on a pasuk in Divrei Hayam in the Pasuk, which is well-known, Lucha Hashem HaGdula VaGevura VaTiferes VaNetzach. Those words, Gvura, Tiferes, Netzach, became the Sefer called Gvura Hashem. Sefer Rav Hutner used to relate to them as Sefer HaGvura, Sefer HaTiferes, Sefer HaNetzach. The, the Svarim, and of course, Maral wrote, what, t- today we have a compilation of Pirushim of his on the Haggadah, Pirushim of his on Pirkei Avos. We have four volumes of Pirushim on Haggadah Sashas. Besides those other Svarim, which I called Sefer HaGadula, Sefer HaGvura, Sefer HaTiferes, which became perhaps the basis of a certain type of Jewish philosophy, which we'll get back to in a minute. Besides those Svarim, he wrote two volumes, today printed as two volumes, called Netivot Olam, where he 
brings different pillars of the world and explains nativ of MS, nativ of chesed, all various nativim in the world. It seems to me that for many years the Maharal was more famous for the legend about the golem than for his actual philosophy. This legend about the golem, of course, was popularized in literature and by public folk stories. The veracity and the historical events of the golem are not for me to go into now. It is interesting that when I was a child, I found this tshuva of, an, of a descendant of the Maral, questioning whether, in fact, you could count a golem as a person for a minion. I remember running as a child to my father and saying to him, did you see such a tshuva? Can you count a golem to a minion? And my father's response was, I've seen many times in Jewish history that we've counted people who are golem to a minion. But that tshuva and the legends seem to be the fame of the Maharal for perhaps hundreds of years. With the beginning of the world of Hasidus, it seems that the Maharal's theology, his philosophy, took on a new meaning. People began to delve themselves more into the study of the Maharal, and therefore, I think, his popularity increased. I'd like specifically to relate to two people who were greatly influenced by the Maharal. The first is Rav Kook, who was one of the people who based many sichot, many of his drashos, were based on the Maharal. He used to say that the Maharal said things in a hidden way, which have to be explained, and we have to delve into the lines of the Maharal. I'd like to cite an example that was uh, quoted by Rav Zevin in an article on Rav Kook. Rav Zevin writes how he visited Rav Kook on a Sudash Lishit in Yerushalayim, and he heard him say, Divrei Torah. And at one point, Rav Zevin said, the Lubavitcher Chassid that he was, he said, there's only one thing that I haven't heard yet, and that's some sort of a Torah that is reminiscent of Lubavitch, of the theology and philosophy that he understood from the Lubavitcher Rebbe's. And then Rav Kook proceeded to say something along those lines. The Mishnah in, in Tanis, the end of Tanis, implies that the Kohen Gadol ranks number one among the level of the Kohanim. Secondly, second to him, is the Kohen Mashuach Melchama, that special Kohen that was appointed in time of war. The third level seems to be the Skan Kohen Gadol, the assistant to the Kohen Gadol. The Tuei Even, the great Shagas Ayi, pointed out that this seems to contradict the Mishnah Horius. The Mishnah Horius implies that the daughter, that the, that the, uh, the Skan Kohen Gadol comes before the Mashiach Muhammad, I might have said it backwards. In, in the Mishnah Tanis, the implication is that Mashiach Muhammad is less than the Skan Kohen Gadol. The Skan Gadol comes second, the Mashiach Muhammad comes third. Whereas the Mishnah Horias, it seems to be that Mashiach Muhammad is second, the Skan Kohen Gadol is third. So, Rav Kook explained that the Mishnah in Tanis is referring to the daughter of the Kohanim, and it says there the daughter of the Mashiach Muhammad is somehow in, somewhat inferior to the daughter of the Skan Kohen Gadol. I said that that implies that the Mashiach Melchama is less than the Skan Kohen Gadol, and therefore it would contradict the Mishnah Mishnayis, the Mishnah Horius. Rav Kook quoted the Maharal as saying that there are certain concepts which are eternal and certain concepts which are transient. They make no difference as to how long they last, but the concept itself might be an eternal concept, but perhaps it might exist only briefly. On the other hand, there are certain concepts which, which, concepts which by nature are transient, but they might last a very long time. The example that Rav Kooks brought 
is found in the beginning of Sefer Agvuros, where Rav Kook, where the Maharal explains the difference between Galut and Geula, between Shalom and Milchama. Galut is a temporary situation. Geula is a permanent situation. Now, Galut has lasted very, very long time, but nevertheless, in God's world, this is a temporary concept. The concept of Geula is eternal. The concept of Shalom, Matai Kvar Yagia, when will we attain that concept of Shalom? But nevertheless, the concept of Shalom is an eternal concept. The concept of Milchama, even though there could be a thousand year war, but the concept of Milchama is only a temporary aberration in the world. It's not considered a concept of permanence. This idea was used by Rav Kook to answer the Kasha of the Torah Evan. When we talk about who is more high, who is higher on the pecking order of Kahuna, the Kongaro comes first. The Skan Kongaro comes, well, we'll have to see. The Mishnah in Horios implies that Mashiach Muhammad is higher. But the Mishnah Tanis implies that the Skan Kongaro is higher. So Rav Kook said, since Mashiach Muhammad is a transient concept, when we're talking about the person himself, at the time of war, at the time the Mashiach Muhammad is appointed, indeed he is higher than the Skan Kohen Gadol. That's the Mishnah in Horios. But the, the Mishnah in Tanis is referring to a second generation, to a continuation of this concept of Mashiach Muhammad. Mashiach Muhammad in the term concept of continuation really does not have the same level as the first generation because it's not an eternal concept, it's a transient concept. And therefore the daughter of the, of the Mashiach Muhammad is less than the daughter of the Skan Kohen Gadol, although the Moshech Muhammad himself is higher than that of the Skan Kohen Gadol. So, you see how Rav Kook used the Maharal as one example, even to answer Akasha in Lambdas. And of course, much, much of his philosophy, much of Rav Kook's philosophy, is quoted and explained, and we find hints of the Maharal in much of Rav Kook's thought. One of the people that was very influenced by Rav Kook in the world of Machshava, is the Rosh Yeshiva of the founder of the Yeshiva, Chaim Berlin in America, Harav Yitzchak Kutner, Zichon Not only do we find his Svarim, Pachad Yitzchak, we find in them constant references to the Maharal, many, many explanations of the Maharal, of, that the Maharal said. Rav Hutner credited Rav Kook with opening his eyes to the Maharal. Rav Neria, in one of his books, about people who lived within the periphery of Rav Kook, has a chapter in Rav Hutner, and that chapter he quotes Rav Hutner as saying, Rav Kook had mir the egin sun maharal. Rav Kook opened my eyes to the maharal. And, inasmuch as we're in the month of Elul, I'd like to quote something that Rav Hutner said in the name of the maharal in to do with Rosh Hashanah. Usually we think of the concept of tshuva, that tshuva means to go from bad to good. But the word tshuva is really referring to the past. Now, the concept that we think of tshuva, of going from bad to good, has nothing to do with the etymological concept of tshuva. The Maharal wrote, Rav, Kuk, Rav Hutner quotes this in Pachad Yitzchak and Rosh Hashanah, that the Maharal said, The real meaning of tshuva is to go back to our roots. The, the concept of tshuva is really to return. To return to what? To the situation before the sin. In terms of Klal Yisrael, it means to return to the situation to the original sin. It means to go back 
to the original concept of Gan Eden. These cons- this world that we live in, we live in the world of Adam HaRishon, Lifnei HaChet. This is only one side example of quoting the Maharal found in Rafutner. We'll find this time and time again. The Maharal was somehow rediscovered and became the basis for Hasidic philosophy, for Rav Kook's philosophy, Rav Hutner's philosophy, among others. You've been listening to Rabbi Yom Tavori, and you've been listening to KMTT, Kimi Tzion, Teitzei, Torah, Udvar Hashem Yerushalayim. This is Ezra Bick wishing you a Shabbat Shalom. Bechol Tov, we'll be back next week with our regular series of scheduled shiurim on KMTT, the Torah podcast, broadcasting from Yeshivat HaRetzion in Alon Shvot Eretz Yisrael. Kol Tov, Shabbat Shalom.